Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that can't unsee Ed Davies' Orange Hammer. My name's Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. Davies' Orange Hammer, which I believe is also a song on Abbey Road, it was a representation of a bit of a metaphor, wasn't it? The wonderful sight of Ed Davey knocking down a big blue, well, I say a big, a, a small blue wall with a tiny orange hammer to uh, illustrate the Liberal Democrats won the uh, Cheshire and Amersham by-election, and not as some by-elections tend to be, you know, a nail-bitingly close result. The Liberal Democrats like fair play to them, ended up with, what, an 8,000 majority? A 25% swing. It's, I, I imagine, giving uh, the Conservative Party an awful lot to think about. And uh, the reason the wall is blue is because it's a new electoral phenomenon, the, the blue wall, which we, we talked about a few weeks ago in our local election debrief. This is more evidence of the electoral salience of the blue wall. Uh, we'll talk in this episode, as Steve says, about some of the national implications. We'll talk about local implications of the by-election. We'll start off with the real reason why the Lib Dems won the by-election. And that's because I predicted they wouldn't win. But more on that after this. Our celebrity listener, obviously Mark Pack, seems to spend a lot of time in, in Chesham and Amersham. It's almost like he holds a significantly senior role in the Liberal Democrats right now. That is the rumour, isn't it? Mark should probably be sending me a, a big thank you because in the secret end-to-end encrypted WhatsApp in which presumably Steve is going to do a Dominic Cummings and leak all of my embarrassing predictions. Um, so I thought I'd get this one out of the way. There was some Lib Dem internal polling that I think was put out a day or two before the by-election that had the Lib Dems four points behind the Tories. And so I put this in that encrypted end-to-end chat uh, with hot take that the Lib Dems are not going to win Chesham and Hammersham. And lo and behold, as could have been predicted once I predicted the Lib Dems were going to lose... Yeah, I was going to say there are there are three certainties in life: death taxes and Corey's predictions coming uh, coming a cropper. The reason why I predicted it, apart from that, obviously hope is tremendously overrated, and one should never really have any hope <laughs> whatsoever, especially of Tories losing elections. Seeing that internal polling reminded me a lot of a lot of the internal polling we saw in the run up to the twenty nineteen election where there were seats in that blue wall, talked about in by Maria Sobolewska and Rob Ford in their excellent Brexit land, which I've talked about in the podcast before. Do read Brexit land. It's an incredibly good book. And so essentially, you've got about 20 or 30 seats, usually have been rock-solid conservative in the past. Um, seats like Esher and Walton, seats like Wimbledon, seats like London and Westminster. And the demographic change in those seats, where you've essentially got Tory Remainer voters. They tend to be wealthier, tend to be high levels of graduates and um, tend to be majority Remain. And Chesham and Amersham is a seat that was, I think, 55% voted Remain in 2016. The Lib Dems thought they could hit a lot of those seats 
in the 2019 general election put a lot of effort into winning seats like say Dominic Raab's seat where there was an 18% swing to the Lib Dems but they still only that still left them uh, about 2,800 votes short I think of a majority of them. There was a lot of internal polling in seats like Dominic Raab's that had the Lib Dems within striking distance that then the Tories held on to in 2019. And the other thing that struck me is that my Twitter feed for most of the past week has been full of Lib Dem activists taking pictures of lots of Lib Dem posters and saying, look, it's all going orange, which just made me think that what was essentially going to happen is, yes, OK, there's lots of canvassing, there's lots of activists, there's lots of volatility, but actually most of the voters will just quietly vote Tory and it'll be fine. And and that and that didn't happen. I, I, I do kind of get where you're... Where, where you're coming from not necessarily with your almost nihilistic view of hope there has definitely been it feels certainly from the liberal democrats a notion of oh we're, we're for, for, for god knows how many years now at this point you know we're on the cusp of a comeback we're on the cusp of a comeback it first it was tim farron then it was joe swinson and it, and it just seems to kept on happening and, and it never quite materialized in any any real way we have probably hit a point where forgiveness or forgiving and and or forgetting for what the Liberal Democrats did or were perceived to have done as part of the coalition with the Conservatives has occurred. Has occurred. Yeah, there's a, there's a few things I think going on, isn't there? So I mean, one of them is that the Lib Dems in the nineties won a lot of by-election victories like this, often at seats that then they would lose in um, subsequent elections. Even in twenty nineteen, so the Lib Dems did win the Brecon and Radfordshire by-election, but then did lose that by-election in the general election three months later. I, I can't believe I'm going to make another prediction having said that, uh, <laughs> given the uh, the whole conceit of the opening of, of this episode. I don't expect the Lib Dems will hold this seat in a subsequent general election. In a way, that's not the point. There's a few different things we can talk about. I think one of them is the local scale of the, the by-election result. One of them, which you've sort of hinted at, is, is Labour tactical voting for the Lib Dems. I think Labour got its lowest, one of its lowest ever votes in the, in the by-election, which, again, seems to be similar to the Richmond by-election, where Sarah only won, again, I think before the 2017 election, when I think, again, I, don't, I think the Lib Dems won that by-election, lost it in the subsequent general election. Uh, the Labour vote in the Richmond by-election was lower than the total number of Labour members in that seat because people realised that defeat the Tories, voting Lib Dem in those kind of seats was the way to go. Should we touch on very quickly some of the local factors first? Yeah. Um, Lib Dem seem to have picked a pretty decent candidate for this one. I think Sarah Green, isn't it? Whereas um, Peter Fleet, as I imagine we'll get on to when we talk about how the Conservatives are interpreting this result, doesn't seem to have been the strongest candidate and did manage to put out a tweet, now deleted, in which he he basically said he was very disappointed in the voters of Cheshire and Amersham <laughs> voting for a Lib Dem. I don't think he was quite meaning to blame the electorate in the way he did, but maybe... Um... Yeah, I, I, to be fair, I think I, I, I worked out what he, what he was trying to say is, I'm disappointed and they did this for, for whatever reason, but he just worded it very clunkily. So Lib Dems have a by-election winning machine, don't they? And this seemed to be very much get your activists in, focus on HS2. There's a, a certain finessing, shall we say, of the Lib Dem position on HS2 with the party supporting HS2 nationally in the by-election, uh, making their opposition to HS2 a big issue. And indeed, Dame Cheryl Gillen, who was the MP for Cheshire and Amersham, um, who sadly passed away, which is why this election had to be called, 
um, she was a very active campaigner against NHS too as well. So you'd have thought that a Tory campaign could have made that argument too. But I think the Tory campaign is actually probably one of the major things. Though there, there, there seem to have been a number of like anecdotal pieces of evidence of the actual local campaign not being particularly great um, on the conservative side, to the extent where there were there were reports from some like Lib Dem activists who were kind of like in the area and and, and just happened to be kind of going past you know where the uh, Tory MP's office is, and you, they can see conservative activists who've turned up to try and help for the day. And there's no one there to greet them. There's no one there to help. The fact that they were using AI-generated scripts for calling and, and things like that, rather than focusing on local issues. A poor campaign, not just necessarily a poor candidate, but a poor campaign on the Conservative side as probably part of the reason for this. That said, I don't think that on its own explains an 8,000 uh, vote majority. It is the scale of it, isn't it? To go from a 16,000 majority to an 8,000 vote the other way. The other... Uh, local issue that the Lib Dems seem to have made a big issue of was on planning and the government's planning reforms. Turnout in this election was was fifty two percent, which in the by election is bloody good, good actually. Yeah. Um, but in, I think in twenty nineteen was seventy six percent. So I think there's a definite factor of Tory voters staying at home, maybe voting Lib Dem. The thing I think with with this seat is that it's representative of a sort of wider trend so there's an interesting uk and eu report on that they did this about a year or two but just at the start of the last lib dem leadership election on the future of the lib dems they highlight about 29 seats that are within striking distance for the lib dems so the lib dems won 11 seats in 2019 there's 29 that they would gain on a sort of on a 10 percent swing only two of those are Labour facing at the moment. So Sheffield Hallam and Cambridge held by Labour at the moment. One of them is Eastern Bartonshire, so Joe Swinson's seat, which is won by the SNP. The others are almost overwhelmingly in the south of England with very similar de- demographics to this. Some of which the Lib Dems have held before, like Cheltenham, like Brecon and Radnorshire we've talked about, like Taunton, like St Ives and Eastbourne. Um, some of which, as I say, like Esher and Walton or Workingham, which I think is a Wokingham, sorry, which is John Wedwood's Redwood seat. And this is something that Mark Pack has talked about before, is this kind of Lib Dem core vote strategy. And it feels like actually that core vote for the Lib Dems is generally graduate voters, that Tory Remain voters in those kind of seats. One of the other things I think in the report, which I thought was quite interesting is in 2010, The Lib Dems were second place in 76 seats, which were won by Labour. Um, One of them, in fact, I I used to live in Oldham, East and Saddleworth. I forget who who the Labour MP was who won there in 2010. But it's Um, probably probably nobody important. And then in 2019, that's gone down to, to nine seats. The Lib Dems are becoming that opposition to the Tories in a lot of southern England. And that could have some pretty interesting consequences, couldn't it? Absolutely. This is a quite a potential change here. And I think this really does kind of like highlight a major, major issue for the Conservatives moving forward. The, the, the Lib Dems kind of like campaign was very localist. 
Um, yes, they had a very good ca- uh, candidate. Yes, they were throwing the kitchen sink at the sink at the ca- at the campaign as well. Like because I used to be a Lib Dem member, I'm still on their databases and and and, and things like that. So I still get the emails because I just haven't bothered to unsubscribe to them. And they've still got my phone number. I got a phone book call from from the Lib Dems basically saying, "Hi, we know you've supported the Lib Dems in the past. We are going to do an all out effort uh, in Cheshire, Cheshire and Amersham because there's a by election there. Could you come down for a, for a day and give us give us a give us a hand?" Obviously. I'm a Labour member now. I'm not going to go and help them, but like they were pulling out all the stops, reaching out to everybody that they possibly could do to try and get people down there. They were so desperate for activists, they even tried to get you down. That's how <laughs> desperate. <laughs> that campaign was very much based on 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 local issues for the, for the most part. The only real kind of that I can see national issue that was kind of brought up um, or has kind of been given attention was, as you alluded to earlier, like HS2, um, which is obviously in that particular state, is it, people are strongly against it. Mostly that's true. There was an interesting comments from Minerva Wilson, one of the Lib Dem who was down there, who was in an interview with the Huffington Post was talking about the Tories' culture war was going down like a lead balloon in some of those uh, blue wall seats. So the fact that, let's say, foreign aid cuts, which we'll be talking about next week, that M- some MP supporting players, th- those who are fans booing England players for taking the knee before the Euro 2020, yeah. Euro 2021 games, where you've got the Tories trying to win these northern, uh, well, the, the red wall seats, yeah. going heavily on cultural issues for some of the reasons we've talked about in previous podcasts. And that does seem to be alienating a lot of their more traditional support. Yeah, and, and I think that kind of f- falls through into like the the, the the other thing I was kind of kind of wanted to bring up, which is that if, if you've got the if, if you say that the, the two court Tories the, the Tories two main kind of focuses at the moment are the leveling up agenda, targeting the red wall seats, and like culture war kind of issues, which I think is a is a fair kind of representation of what they're what what they are kind of focused on. You end up in a situation where places like Cheshire and Amersham, well, yes, historically they are quite well off. Yes, they they have received more investment and all of these different things. What they're seeing is an awful lot of conversation happening on one uh, money going to places that aren't them, and then also issues that they know may not necessarily uh, align with in terms of the cultural stuff. Now, cultural stuff is you're either for it or against it. it it's it's on the side. There's not really much you can do there. Well, actually, the polling suggests that actually most people just don't know or care about yeah, the cultural that, that as well. Yeah, yeah. But if if you do have an opinion, like it's, it's you're either for or against them. There's very little kind of room for compromise. Or on the kind of like the more kind of like economic side of things, you know, investment expenditure in in different seats. Since 2010 and um, the you know the birth of austerity, um, everywhere. Every council, every kind of seat in the UK has pretty much been hit with drastic reductions in, in you know, budgets and cuts to, to services, all of these different things, which is absolutely like people are willing to kind of put up with that sort of stuff if they feel like there is no alternative and, you know, the money's not available. But as soon as you hit a point where suddenly on a national stage, the conservative government, which and you voted conservative your entire the, the entire existence of this seat and, and, and everything, a conservative government that's meant to be kind of representing your interests is saying there is money, but we're not give, giving anything to spend on in this sort of area. It's all going up there. To the, to the north, to these other areas, you can start to see why that gets a little kind of uh, annoying and why that kind of, kind, kind of can turn people off the Conservatives. Because 
ultimately, the lack of the like, austerity has led to a decrease in council budgets. Austerity has led to a decreasing expenditure overall, which in turn has led to a lot of issues across the entire country, some of which are a lot more um, noticeable and, and popularised than others. But there was a lot of things I saw online which were almost kind of like getting annoyed at the Lib Dems for highlighting the number of potholes on the roads and, and things like that in the area. But it's like, well potholes are really noticeable and if the conservatives are in charge of the area and have been for forever and it's a conservative government who's saying there's no money available to actually fix those they're going to vote for the for, for a party that's actually saying you know what we can actually fix these things that are an issue in your your area because they're actually it sounds like you are listening to them it sounds like you are actually wanting to fix the problems they're interested in like i think a, a number of the kind of like the the analysis and vox pops and things that have been done so far for Cheshire and Amersham have used the words like that Cheshire and Amersham and those sorts of blue wall seats feel taken for granted, which is absolutely fascinating because that's the exact same sort of language that gets utilised to describe the red wall as well. You have that, that feeling that they're not being listened to, that the government's priority isn't on them and the government isn't looking to represent them and solve their issues. And at the same time, the other side of the equation is the government's doing a load of culture war stuff, which people don't like, or if they do like, if, if they are paying attention to it, they don't like. And chances are they're not even paying attention to it. So all they're seeing is the government saying there's no money for you, but there's money for this stuff up here. That is a major problem for the Conservatives. Because put simply, it means that the government needs to be able to do its levelling up agenda to hold the red wall seats or, or potentially even expand. And that requires money. But the South, if, if, they, if that runs the risk of alienating their voters in the South and they lose seats there, they need to inject money into there as well, which means needs to be paid for. Now, that either means increasing taxes, which the Conservatives don't want to do as a general rule. And if they do do it, you're going to end up with a load of negative headlines and all kinds of political problems for them. Or Rishi Sunak, is, uh, uh, as the Chancellor of the Exchequer and an individual who is wedded to, the con to a certain concept of sound, quote unquote, finance, is going to just put his foot down and say, no, we're not funding this, which means that they won't be able to do anything or they'll only be able to do bits and pieces, and they'll struggle in both areas. So the, the Conservatives have a very real and difficult situation that they need to try and find a solution to. And that's before we even get into the kind of like political fallout of, on like the Conservative backbenches to this and what that means for certain elements like the... Um, God, what's it called again? The... Um, is it the, 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 the house building stuff. I can't remember what the thing's called again. My brain's gone. I think just, I mean, Labour's yeah. calling it a developer's charter. So we yeah. should call it that, Steve. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we should have right. a message and we should repeat it ruthlessly. <laughs> but yeah, and that, that doesn't even, this is this is before you even get into the potential political fallout of a number of the, the policies that form part of the levelling up agenda, such as the what, what's being called the developer's charter, which is basically all about kind of like easing up, you know, housing regulations, making it easier to build houses and, and things like that. That was already going down like a lead balloon amongst an awful lot of conservative backbenchers. And now they have evidence to support then to support that the fact that this is not good for them electorally. But the problem is, without that, a big part of the leveling up agenda can't happen. So immediately, you are you can see like the rock and the hard place that the conservative leadership is placed in. And I, I'm not sure I see a way out for them. I think your point on austerity and government spending, I think, is very very valid. I mean, we've talked already about the tension there in the Tory coalition between Northern Tory MPs who would quite like to have more money 
in their seats to hold those seats and between the more fiscally conservative uh, strand of the, of the Tory party, of which Rishi Sunak is undoubtedly one. Peter Flett, who we said that we'd return to, um, wrote an article for The Telegraph saying that actually uh, voters want to see a return to fiscal discipline. And that's why the Tories lost here in, in Chesham and Amersham, because uh, although, yes, so he said, although voters understood the need to increase spending in an emergency, which we've had last year with the pandemic, now they want to see uh, a return to, to balanced budgets, all that sort of stuff. What planet is he on? Like it was Chesham, I think. It's a uh, my god. Like what? What on earth makes you? What on earth leads you to that to conclusion? Looking at the campaign, looking at the Lib Dem messages, looking at this situation, and you come away with, oh no, that like the Conservative Party position was clearly correct the, the entire time. No, I think this well, is a... the reflexive Conservative Party position is correct the entire time. And actually, we just need to go back to more of what I think is happens to be correct to begin with. Well, th- this is what happens, though, isn't it, Steve? Any win, a- any win or loss for your party in any election proves your politics. We've been through this. True. Yeah. Um, it's a really good point about the fact that any level, and we've talked about this a couple of weeks ago on our levelling up episode, that any levelling up doesn't really mean anything. Different people are going to assume that levelling up means different things. And as levelling up and any government agenda will mean the government making choices, some people are going to lose out and there'll be winners and losers. And that is a very big shift away from that narrative of austerity, which was about collective sacrifice in a very similar way to the, the sort of the lockdown stay at home message was, which then got torpedoed with Cummings and Barnard Castle, where people were happy to go ahead with lockdown as part of this shared sacrifice, which is just being frayed at the edges now and was completely torpedoed with the selfishness of Cummings. I think in terms of the politics of this, you say there's no way out for the Tories. I think actually, if you were Dominic Cummings and if he was still advising Johnson rather than posting 8,000 tweet threads or whatever, I think that the, the thesis would be, yes, there's a blue wall, However, there's, as you say, I've seen 29 seats. You said 23 seats. There's um, Steve Akehurst in a, another blog on the Blue Wall says he, he thought it was about 41 seats. So it's a, it's a pretty decent number. However, there are probably far more seats than that, which the Tories are either have gained in the North or are within striking distance of taking from Labour in the North. Yeah. So if we assume that there is a, a sort of political realignment going on, as is sort of pointed out in books like Brexit Land, where you have your sort of identity conservative voters going around sort of cultural issues, going around sort of authoritarian type politics. Um, actually, you can see a majority for the conservatives by just doubling down on that and losing some seats here to, to gain more elsewhere. Sure, and that, and that kind of works in the, in, in, in the wider kind of like mathematical sense of, seats gains versus seats losses but you've then got, you've still got like the to, to me the short term maybe short to medium term depending on how you want to class it problem of the fact that you've then got let's let's say let, let's use the let's use the, the lower end of these estimates or, or whatever just 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 for ease you've got 20 odd seats in the blue wall 20 odd mps who are now you're basically saying well sorry lads probably all our lads as well we're not interested in your seats anymore we're just going to try and plough ahead with this. And the, the issue is, and as, as, as I said earlier, a number of those and, and the MPs that 
hold those seats are still going to be needed to get legislation through. We, we have divisive legislation such as like house house planning reform and things like that. You need those people on board. And so that is something that they still need to find a way through. Because if the Tories can't get the backbenches on board with that, then they can't still they still can't do a major part of their leveling up agenda. So they can't just say, you know what? Sorry, Dominic Raab, just as an example. We don't really care about you anymore because they still need those votes in the interim and they still need to get those people on board for the agenda. Otherwise, they can't do the actual leveling up bit. And that's, that, that's I think, the, is, is the, the real kind of like uh, circle that they need to square. Like they, they just don't have a real easy answer to, to that. Or rather, the answer that is there is just increase expenditure in general, increase taxes so you can do both. But Sunak won't let that happen. Well, no, indeed. And the, the, the front page of the Sunday Times today is profligate PM's pledges fuel tax rise fears. So you've already got, this is the Tim Shipman article, Downing Street and the Treasury are loggerheads over tax and public spending because Johnson keeps announcing plans costing billions of pounds of money because he Johnson likes his infrastructure, talked about the... There's a, he announced a Marshall Plan for Global Green Growth at the recent G7 Summit, which again lots of extra money uh, talking about tax rises there's a in, in the piece it talks about this plans being mooted for an online sales tax for instance as you say it's the interpretation by the conservatives of this result and i think there's it's one of those weird things where on on twitter there's usual sort of arch numpties saying why is no one from the bbc flocking to talk to people in cheshire and Amish in the same way they flock to talk to people in hartlepool meanwhile actually if you look below the radar there's lots of comments from lots of conservatives who are quite worried about this result and what it means for the electoral future of the conservative party an article I mentioned, Peter Fletts from other novel interpretation of the by-election loss. Douglas Murray has come out in the Telegraph. He's not surprised because there's nothing very conservative about this conservative government. It's all about spending money. He was very. I, I know it makes no sense. It, shall I just? Shall I read the quote that's on Twitter? Yeah, yeah. So, so this is from the this is from the article. So, most of the emissions of this government are indistinguishable from the sort of interventionist soft leftism that voters could, if they wanted to, get almost anywhere else. Every time a conservative minister tries to do something conservative, when there's Priti Patel on borders, she seems to get no support from colleagues. Yet waffle on about carbon neutrality or building back better in a more non-binary feminist manner as Boris Johnson did at the G7. And there seems no party pushback at all. It's as though if you cut to the heart of the modern Conservative Party, all you get is a sort of sludgy green. Where exactly is the conservatism in this government, aside from the old bit of cultural material thrown to voters like a tiddly fish to a performing seal? It's hard to find anything. Is it especially conservative to seriously consider the plans to make people pay tens of thousands of pounds for a new environmentally friendly boiler or give up their car because they can't afford electric, all while forcing people into one of the most expensive rail and underground networks anywhere in the world? This is a sort of conservatism you have to be exceptionally well off to afford, a sort of Soho farmhouse conservatism. The more, the more you read that, Murray, the more and more I went, we are very much kind of going into a situation where there are no true conservatives in, in power. There is only these people masquerading as conservatives. And actually, we all need to change these people out for somebody new. And it will just so happen that all those new people will be your Lawrence Foxes or... Or, or, or whomever and and sadly seemingly even some some individuals who are part of the conservative movement who have been if not necessarily right on things at least interesting and like intellectual and and you know good people to follow 
to 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 follow online because they have interesting takes have kind of like fallen massively into this kind of little thing as well so like tim montgomery um former um like uh edit i think it was the editor um for um from, from conservative home um has always been like quite quite has had quite interesting takes he comes from a very much of a like a, a conservative christian background like even now he still highlights you know the aid cuts are wrong not just for moral reasons but for you know um geopolitical reasons all of these sorts of things you know the sort of stuff that we've been we've been saying um ourselves it, there's been a movement apparently to post face masks to boris johnson in in number 10 as a means of protest about lockdown and things and he's doing doing that and he's fallen into like the julia hartley brewer kind of school of ridiculous state takes and stances on 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 lockdown and 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 everything and yeah i don't know the more and more I'm, i'm thinking about it the more and more i'm convinced you can start to see how you get to almost like a QAnon type setup in the in, in, in the UK from, from, from the right wing, from the right of British politics, which is kind of terrifying, but it's, you can see the, like the seeds of it there because they're just focused on idiocy um, and they're just not actually thinking things through at all, but they're, they're just kind of so latched onto a notion of, I don't know, it's not even like what the right thing is to do. They're just so latched onto the notion that somebody's telling them they can't do something. And there's a few different things, aren't there? I think one of them is that there's a lot of anti-lockdown sentiment, essentially from white middle-class people who've never actually had any hardship before and can't really yeah. face being told, no, you, you have to wear a mask and no, you can't do that. I think part of it is there's a really interesting economist piece this week on the globalization of politics and how america and this is happening on both left and right so on the left you see things like say the black lives matter movement and and protest and that is inspiring copycat versions across the world even in countries that don't have a huge um black population or um african-american population but it's, mm-hmm. it's something that is it's happened all of all across the world yeah on, on the right, you see it with the notion of importing a culture war into British politics, when actually most normal people don't know or care about what that culture war actually is uh, and don't know what it means. Also, it's a symptom of the fact that people like Douglas Murray and Tim Montgomery, are obviously advocates of Brexit, have never really, and we talked about this last week, have never really ha- been able to adjust to the fact that the Brexit in which they that they wanted was never actually achievable in reality. And so therefore they just see any sort of movement on it as betrayal. And I think that's a big part of the radicalization as well. Yeah, we, we do almost seem to be kind of like walking into a, into a situation where like the right has become a, 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 um, a living walking no truth Scotsman fallacy where like if, if you are you must subscribe to every single element of this. And if you don't, you're not really a conservative. Yeah, I think and online and discourse and social media doesn't really help that at all. Yeah. I mean, it certainly isn't prevalent in the Labour Party. Uh, we're quite a broad church, I think. You're trying to bait me. <laughs> <laughs> and I will not bite. And again, you know, there's a, there's a by-election in a couple of weeks, and it could we, if the Conservatives win another by-election in another Labour seat, then there's a very different conversation which is happening, I think, in a couple of weeks' time, isn't there? The future at the moment is is difficult to tell, isn't it? Because you can see on one hand, actually, 
Boris Johnson is sort of reigning supreme, you can see there could be a, a period of conservative hegemony. On the other hand, there's a there's a definite situation where if Labour can keep its vote in its in its core areas that it held in 2019, possibly expand that out, um, you've got a situation where you've got 30 or 40 seats which the Conservatives could lose the Lib Dems. Then it becomes quite hard to see how the Conservatives could get a majority. We don't know where it's going to go in this yet. It could play out in lots of different ways. Um, but you could, the, the, the optimistic view from, I suppose, I'll ask like this, you, you can see a position in which the cracks in Boris Johnson's premiership appear if you've got, say, a Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. I don't think that he keeps that coalition together because, as you say, he's got a very different economic stance. Yeah, in, in that, he, like, Sunak, as much as we might disagree with him, actually has an ideology. I think it's the wrong one, but he's got one. Johnson just will say whatever he can to try and make people happy. Um, and the problem is, well, both have their ups and downsides. One's that a lot e- makes it a lot easier to, to win elections if people actually like you as a person, but Sunak's going to actually try and enforce an, a, an idea and an ideology which won't be popular. If you want us to enforce some unpopular views on you, you can subscribe to our Patreon page, can't you, Steve? You can indeed. You can head over to patreon.com slash not enough champagne where you can throw us a few pounds every month uh, to gain access to our community over there. Um, we post uh, you know, unique episodes quite regularly uh, on, on there, uh, which are made available only to our patrons, our champagners. Um, they are normally, what, I don't know, 20-minute discussions where we're a little bit more, I don't know, relaxed about what we're saying. Um so if, if you want to get the real hot takes and even more bad predictions from Corey, that's that's the place to go. Our website's notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. Dave Depper composed our theme tune for Good Times. James Cram designed the logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram. I'm at Paperback Rioter. I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy predicting. <laughs> <laughs>